Good to see you all. Uh, I, I love coming over here. Uh, as most of you know, like I lead Village South, uh, so I don't get here that much. Um, I wish that it wasn't under these circumstances, and please do keep praying for Nick and his family uh, over the next coming days. Um, we're in uh, Philippians chapter 3 this morning, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and, and turn it to Philippians chapter 3. Um, that's where we're going to be. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, I just kind of want to start out by, by talking about cycling, uh, which seems a bit weird. Maybe you don't like cycling. Maybe you think they're annoying when you're driving down a country road. Maybe you think, uh, why do uh, middle-aged men with such unfortunate-looking bodies have to wear such tight clothes? Uh, I am one of those people, maybe not middle-aged, getting there, um, but I love it. I love it as a hobby. I love it as, I, I love working on my bike. Uh, John and I used to run a wee bike shop, actually, um, and I love watching it on TV. Last year, I actually got to go to France uh, to watch some of the Tour de France and, and finish in Paris, and all that was amazing. Um, but one of the things I love about cycling so much, professional cycling, is that it just produces some really tough, tough athletes and the spirit of endurance that goes into it. Um, if you think about uh, maybe a group of 150, 120 uh, riders all coming down at the side of an Alp at 60 miles an hour, you can imagine that sometimes the crashes are pretty badly, are pretty bad. Um, and there are crashes almost every time there's a race. And it. Maybe there's a little bit of sadism in there that I do like seeing that when that happens. Cause, but I love what happens after the crashes. Um, in 2013 in the Tour de France, Grant Thomas, who's Welsh, she won the Tour de France a couple of years ago. He was involved in a really big crash in the first day of the Tour de France. And he fractured his pelvis. Um, and what happened was, uh, instead of uh, getting airlifted to a hospital and recuperating for a few weeks, uh, like he probably should have done or like a normal person would do, he got back on his bike and finished the race. And then the next day, he continued to race with a broken, they, they confirmed it was a fractured pelvis and he continued to race. And it was so bad that he had to be lifted onto his bike because he couldn't get his leg up to, to get over the bike. On the same crash, there was a German rider called Marcel Kittel, who's uh, he was a sprinter, big, big man. Um, he actually was knocked unconscious in that crash. Uh, he, he had a concussion, he had a contusion on his left lung. Uh, he had a big, uh, deep cut in his elbow. But he still got back on his bike and helped his team win the, 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 the time trial the next day. Um, and, and that's kind of what I love about cycling, is that most of the time, these people who, who keep going forward are not in it for their own glory. They're in it to help their team win. They're in it to help their, their team perform. They just keep going and going and going no matter what. And it's that, I guess it's that spirit of determination that I love about watching it. Um, that desire to win no matter what comes your way. Um, and today in, in this passage in Philippians 3, I know we're, we're, we've been in the um, parables of Jesus is a little bit different. We're taking a step out of that just for this week. Um, but the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to this church in Philippi, this city, which I'll talk about later on. Um, and part of this message is, is, is about don't give up, right? Keep striving towards the goal. Keep, keep moving forward in your faith. And, and in particular, what we're going to look at is this idea of, of not giving up, of what he calls standing firm. So let's have a look at Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 17. So if you have it, uh, follow along. And I'm going to finish in verse 1 of chapter 4. So this is what Paul says to the uh, church in Philippi. And this is what God has sent to us this morning. This is God's word. Brothers and sisters, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many uh, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I think what we can gather from this is that there's something about the Christian life that requires steadfastness, a desire to, to kind of keep walking forward no matter what, like, you know, um, like those cyclists do. 
Um, Paul calls this standing firm in the Lord. Uh, this, he, this is what he says. He said, uh, you know, my brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown, I love you so much. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul loves these people clearly. Uh, he's full of deep affection for them. Uh, he calls them his crown. They mean the world to him. It's like maybe the way that, that, that you feel about your church family or even your own family or biological family. And it's because of this love that he has for them that, that he wants them to stand firm in the Lord. He knows that's what's best for them. And he knows the opposite of that, as we'll see later on, is, is destruction. Um, he, Paul is writing uh, this letter from a prison cell. Uh, we know that he's in prison in Rome. Um, he's going through a really hard time. He, he thinks he may be executed. He's not sure, as we'll see later on, if he's going to survive or not. Um, but still he writes... Uh, to encourage these Christians to stand firm. That's one of his primary concerns in, in this whole letter. In fact, in chapter 1, at the very start of the letter, in verse 27, he says this. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of, G of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, he doesn't know if he's going to be able to make it because he might be executed, which, of course, he was. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for faith of the gospel. He's saying, don't give up, guys. Don't be, don't be pushed off course. Keep, keep just pursuing the gospel of Jesus. And stand firm is the message. And, and, and sometimes when we, when we read uh, the Bible, we have to do a wee bit of work to figure out what was being said in the original language because, you know, language changes over time and, and, and words gain new meaning or the meaning slightly skews. But, but here, actually, the translation we have of stand firm is actually pretty spot on. Stand firm. It, it's like being rooted or grounded, not being moved, persevering. And so it made me think of... Um, you know when you're driving up to the north coast and, and, and you know that road that goes kind of between Balmany and Port Rush and as you get closer and closer to the coast you realize that the trees all start to look a bit funny. Do you know what I'm talking about? And the trees are all bending away from the sea and so they're all, you know, kind of, the, 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 they're all bent this way and, and, and the leaves and branches are all on one side. Have you, have you, everyone's like, what are you talking about? Have you, you have seen this, right? Yeah. Um, because they've been, they've been there for years and this Atlantic wind comes off the sea and, and even though they're, they're, they're changed by their surroundings and they're influenced by that environment, that wind that they're in, they don't move. They're rooted and grounded in there and, and they, they, they stand firm. So they're affected by their environment. They look different because of, of what they've, they bear the physical marks of what they've been facing, but, but they don't move. And this is the idea that Paul is getting at here. Stand firm. Paul says, you need to be like those trees. No matter how strong the wind is, what do we do? We stand firm. No matter how much of a battering we take from the elements, we're not moved. We stand firm. We persevere in the Lord. Um, like, like I call this holy stubbornness. If you can't have such a thing, it's a holy stubbornness. It's a refusing to be moved because our sheer hope is in what? <laughs> he says it here in verse 20 because we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what we are called to. And so like those cyclists who, who refuse to quit and get back on their bike and just keep going, we refuse to ever quit on Jesus. And so the question I want to ask and answer uh, over the next, uh, next few minutes here is, is, how do we do this? How do we persevere and not give up? How do we, as Paul tells us to do, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved? How do we stand firm in the Lord? Well, there are three short lessons I want to, to, to look at from this passage and I think help answer this question. And the first one is that we, we stand firm in the Lord by following Christ-like examples. By following Christ-like examples. Listen to what Paul says in, in verse 17. He says, brothers and sisters, uh, that, that's equally to you and me. You and me are his brothers and sisters too. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, I wonder if when you hear that, when you hear him say, imitate me, does that make you a wee bit, you know, you get your back up a wee bit? Like, who's this guy I think he is? Like, imitate me? Because everything we do and say, hopefully in church, is, is, uh, is actually, no, let's just look at Jesus. But actually, Paul isn't being arrogant. He's being a good leader. Because he always has this, 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 this aim of, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. He often tells people to imitate me. Remember, you might remember when we were looking at 
1 Corinthians. He says that in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And why does he do this? Well, well, he knows that, that one of the best features of the, features of the church, one of the best parts of, of the family of God, is that we have older brothers and sisters who we look up to, who we follow, who we imitate, who can show us how to follow Jesus just by the way they follow Jesus. It's part of the, it's part of the brilliance and genius of, of God's design for the church, that we have older people that we look up to. It's how people learn. It's, uh, we learn by following the examples of others. It's how our kids learn, isn't it? Um, I have two kids. Abigail is two, and, and, and Finley just turned six, and and even though she's a two-year-old girl who loves uh, pink dresses and unicorns and stars and sparkly things, she's also really into Lego and Star Wars and sword fights because that's what Finley's into. And so if he's hungry, then all of a sudden she's hungry. Or if he wants to go outside and play, then she wants to go outside and play. She just imitates him. She says the same words as him. She copies everybody's do. If I sit down and cross my legs, she'll sit down and cross her legs. That's how we learn. We learn by imitating others. That's what an apprenticeship is, isn't it? You, you go out in a job and, and you learn by observing someone doing their trade, by, 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 by doing their job. You, you learn that. And this is how we learn to follow Jesus, this, this kind of, this kind of uh, Christian apprenticeship. That's what we're all involved in. We have these older brothers and sisters that we look to, that we copy, that we imitate. Now, and I don't just mean older in age, by the way. There are actually some people who are younger than me that I seek to imitate because sometimes you have, you know, uh, people who are young in age here are spiritually mature and we should imitate them. And sometimes you have people who are, are more mature in years, shall we say, and, and they may be less mature in their faith. But the point is that in the church, in the, in the family of God, God gives us brothers and sisters that we can follow and learn how to follow Jesus. By doing what they do, we will find that we are following Jesus. And this is what discipleship is. It's not just meeting somebody for a coffee once a week, you know? Uh, you know, we'll meet up, uh, we'll meet up uh, you know, in a coffee shop and we'll, uh, you can tell me what's been going on with you and, and we'll maybe read some verses and that's discipleship. I think that's one of the, uh, you know, one of the, the the worst trends that's happened in the, the, the church in the last wee while is that that constitutes discipleship. That's not what discipleship is. It may be an important part of discipleship. Go for coffee and, and do read the Bible together and do confess your sins to one another. But I don't know if you know the story of, of Paul and Timothy in the Bible. The Apostle Paul uh, took Timothy on as a disciple. And, and he didn't just say, right, Timothy, we're going to meet up every Thursday at three o'clock and we'll have our coffee and you can tell me what's going on and, and we'll read the Bible together. He didn't do that. He said, Timothy, son, come with me, follow me. Just like Jesus said to his disciples, follow me, come with me in my journeys. And so wherever Paul went on his missionary journeys, Timothy tagged along too. And imagine all the experiences they had. And, and uh, one of the things, uh, I feel like I talk about this a lot at the minute, is, uh, you know, we just get the highlights in the book of Acts of like Paul's journeys and, and then through the epistles as well. But there was days and weeks and months that aren't recorded in there where maybe not much happened, you know? Maybe they're stuck in a harbor because there's a storm and they can't get the boat out, so they're just sitting there. Maybe they're playing a game or, you know, maybe they're in a town and, and they you know, they need to go to the market and buy food. And then all those little things, all those daily decisions, how, how Paul interacts with people, how, how Paul thinks about money, how, how Paul conducts himself in the presence of other people, and even in his private life. Timothy's watching him. Timothy's with him. And he sees him. He's in, and Paul invites him to observe him and follow his example. So no wonder he can say to the Philippians, imitate me. And you see, church, this is what discipleship is. Biblical discipleship is following the whole life examples of other brothers and sisters as they walk with Jesus. Following the whole life examples of other brothers and sisters as they follow Jesus. That's what discipleship is. It's about spending time in the everyday of our lives, of our brothers and sisters, so you can see how they follow Jesus. And uh, as, as, uh, as we celebrate Lucas and Sue, I remember uh, way back in the early days of Village, 10 years ago, uh, I wasn't married at the time, and, and I used to just kind of impose myself on Lucas and Sue. Like, I think maybe some people did, maybe not as much or as 
frequently as me, but I would just go around, you know, at tea time because I knew there's always be food on the table, there's always something to eat, uh, and I didn't have to cook that way. But I would impose myself on them a little bit, and of course they graciously allowed me to do that and welcomed that, and, and I learned from them. I learned how to parent from them. I learned how to... Um, bring people into my home from them. I learned how to welcome guests and how to trust God's word from them by spending time in the everyday. This is what discipleship is. So this is what we need to do. We need to imitate the examples of older brothers and sisters, how they follow Jesus in their marriage, in their singleness, in their parenting, in their business, in their job, how they are with their neighbors, how they practice hospitality, how they care for the poor, how they celebrate, how they suffer, how they grieve, how they mourn. Allowing people into your everyday and putting yourself into the everyday of other brothers and sisters. We learn how to follow Jesus by imitating uh, how more mature brothers and sisters follow Jesus. If you're a young believer, get yourself attached to older and more mature Christians, honestly. Part of what we do if, uh, when we're preparing young couples for marriage is we say, go and spend time with an older married couple in church. Learn from them. See them together. Ask them questions. And Paul says, hey, imitate me. Imitate the leaders in your church who imitate these guys, who imitate Timothy, and who uh, uh, imitate Epaphroditus. And this is how it works. You see, uh, it, 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 the leadership create this culture in the church, we set a culture of being good examples to follow and of following good examples, but it doesn't end there, right? You're not just a disciple, you are a disciple maker. <laughs> That's the primary function of being a Christian. You're called to make disciples. It starts with the leadership, but it doesn't stop with leadership. And the thing to grasp here is that in the life of the church, you're not just following other people's examples, there will always be people following your example whether you want them to or not. And this is the way God has ordained it to be. This is the way God planned it to be. The Christian life is a life of being an example to others. And how you live today will influence somebody's opinion about Jesus. How you live today will change and shape how they think about our Lord Jesus. The Christian life is a life of being an example, not just following examples. And it's through being disciples that we make disciples, right? So, so people who pursue Christ naturally just make people who pursue Christ. It's like with Finley and Abigail. They just copy what they do. And if the example I follow is, is one of pursuing Jesus, then I will pursue Jesus too. And then the people who follow me will pursue Jesus. You see how this works? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so let me challenge us for a minute. Think about your walk with the Lord. What does that look like? As you pursue Jesus, as you seek to stand firm in the Lord, who are you imitating? Who do you look up to? Who are you following? Whose example are you walking after? And think about this. Think about the, 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 the younger Christians who are looking up to you, who observe you. So, uh, I mean, think about if, if those younger Christians, if they, if, they, if they saw you at home with your kids, would they see a good example? If they saw how you spend your money, they looked at your bank statements or your credit card statement, would they, would they see a good example of standing firm in the faith and following Jesus? If they saw your browser history, would they see a good example? Paul says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example they have in us. We stand firm in the Lord by following Christ-like examples. And it's a beautiful thing. Let people into your life. Let people get close to you and get close to other people in a socially distant kind of way, of course. Spiritually close. Secondly then, we stand firm in the Lord as Paul commands us to, as God commands us to, by walking in the way of the cross. Let me unpack this a little bit uh, by reading verses 18 to 19. Here he goes on to say, after the bit about following the examples, he says, for, now this is the result of what happens if you don't follow good examples. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, I mean, he's mourning over these people, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with mindset and earthy things. This is the result 
if you aren't following good examples. If you're not following good examples, you end up, as Paul says, as enemies of the cross. Now, we don't really know who these people are specifically that Paul is talking about, but it's worth pointing out that there seems to be three opinions on the matter. Some people think that they are, that Paul's talking about Jewish Christians who were um, in the city at the time, and, and they would say, yes, we, we believe in Jesus, but you also need to add on some of these Jewish laws, can, can, you know, keep these laws, and that's how you be a Christian. And others think that these people uh, are, are people who maybe used to be part of the church here in Philippi and then have, have fallen away, have walked away from the church and walked away from Jesus. And then others think that these, are en- these enemies of the cross, as Paul calls them, are, are people who essentially agree with the message of the gospel intellectually. So yeah, yep, 100%, believe that Jesus rose from the dead uh, and by believing him, I am saved and all that kind of stuff. But uh, their lives maybe tell a different story. Um, they would be the kind of people to think, well, listen, I'm saved. I believe that. So I can just live however I want to live. And, and I tend to think that just from the context and so on, that this is this third group that Paul's talking about. But in many ways, it doesn't really matter which group he's talking about because the message is really, really clear. He's saying you will either walk in the way of Jesus, following the examples of, of Christ-like examples, or you will walk as an enemy of the cross. And I, and I need to be faithful to what God is calling me to. And this is my warning. This is our warning. This is God's warning to us, the church, this morning. You either live in the way of the cross or you're an enemy of the cross. You either live in the way of the cross or you live as an enemy of the cross. It's a stark choice. And we all have to face up to it. Day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, and the little things, and the thoughts that pop into your head. Am I going to, when that thought about that person pops into my head, didn't mean to point at you, by the way, that was just, uh, you know, I'm just pointing. That person, am I going to allow myself to, to think that way or think in the way of Jesus? When these little micro decisions come up time after time after time. And if you're not living a life that's shaped by the gospel, you're an enemy of the cross because, because if the gospel isn't shaping the way that you live, you haven't really tr- grasped the message of the gospel truly. Or, or the better way to say that is if, if your life isn't being shaped by the gospel, you haven't let the gospel grasp your heart. You see, sometimes we think that the, the gospel, the message, the good news of Jesus is it's just a doorway into salvation. I don't know. That's kind of the way I was brought up. It's like, believe the gospel and you'll be saved. And then, poof, everything's sweet now. But, but, uh, and by the way, everything is sweet when you believe the gospel. But, but, but the, the, the gospel is more than just a message, a, a doorway into Christianity. The message of the gospel is what shapes and forms the life of Christians, And it's what sustains us until Jesus comes again. It's why every Sunday, you guys, you're part of Village, you hear the gospel preached. Because it's what shapes our life. It's what sustains us. It's what we're to walk in a a manner worthy of the gospel. Remember what we said back at the start of this letter in, 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 in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, Stand firm. And he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live up to this. You know what that means? It's not really obvious when we read it here in English, uh, but, but the, the original language, what Paul says here, is, it relates to citizenship. He says, live like you belong to the kingdom of God. It's kind of like he's saying literally, whatever happens, no matter what happens, because you are citizens of of heaven, live in a way that is worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not just the thing that gets us into the kingdom, it's the way that we live in the kingdom. The kingdom of God is, is, is itself shaped by the gospel. And this makes it easier for us. Now we're getting some traction because if we want to know if something is really worthy of the gospel, am I living in a way that's worthy of the gospel? We'll ask yourself this question. Is this acceptable in the kingdom of God? That thing that I'm about to do. I don't know if you, you probably a lot of you don't know me very well, but sometimes uh, people say I'm a suck it and see kind of guy. Do you know what I mean by that? Like I'll just kind of like jump in (laughs) and not really think. There's a question I have to ask myself a lot. Hang on, this thing that I'm about to do or that I am doing, is this acceptable in the kingdom of God? Is this, is this, a, is this what a citizen of heaven would do? 
Are my actions and behaviors and thoughts and words reflecting in the kingdom of God right now? You see, church, in calling us to walk in the way of the cross, Paul is saying that the calling of the Christian is to live the life of heaven here on earth. We are to live the values of the kingdom of heaven here in the kingdom of earth. Uh, one of the lasting legacies, I think, excuse me, one of the lasting legacies, I think, of, of, of Lucas's influence in village will be the phrase, in Belfast as it is in heaven. Uh, and especially, I mean, you've probably heard him say that, especially back in the early days as we were meeting in the living room. And uh, I mean, that was a phrase that we, we, we talked about, we said a lot. And he taught us that phrase. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, in our, it's in our mission statement. It's, 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 it's in, ingrained in there. Because we are to live the values of the kingdom of heaven here in Belfast in 2020. We are citizens of heaven and we live that here and now. And I wonder if we were just to example our lives, or examine our lives. You know, honestly, just examine your life. You know, that lustful thought you had about that guy in your office that you think is kind of cute. Or that anger you felt in your heart against that guy in the car that cut you off. That's me, by the way. <laughs> Or that, 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 you know, that income that you didn't include in your tax return because you're like, well, it was cash and no one will ever know about it. The websites that you really hope your wife or no one else will ever find out that you visited. Yeah, God knows. All those times you walk past that homeless guy that sits outside the supermarket and, and, and you look at him with judgment instead of compassion. And I wonder if we truly examine our lives can we say that we are living like citizens of heaven? And the stark warning for all of us whether, is whether we're living in the way of the cross or we're living as enemies of the cross. And Paul gives us this picture of what uh, you know, life as an enemy of the cross is like. This is what he says in verse 19. First, he says their end is destruction. They have no eternal hope. They're literally heading towards uh, the wrath of God. God is holding his wrath back right now. But one day, if you're an enemy of the cross, that wrath will be unleashed. And this is the end for everyone who rejects Jesus. Though the way of Jesus leads to eternal life, but rejecting Jesus leads to eternal destruction. And he says, he goes on to say that their God is their belly. Now, this isn't necessarily about food and gluttony, though that's probably part of it. It's, he's not just saying these, guys, these people are all really fat. He's saying that these people who reject Jesus and are enemies of the cross are self-indulgent. The, the, the first thing in their mind is, is what their body needs, what they desire. I want that, I'm going to go after it. So it probably does include overindulgent in food. It, it, it means that they, they just go after every whim of their body. They sleep with whoever they, they want to. They use whatever substances they want to. They drink without restraint. They eat without restraint. They probably spend without restraint. And then what's interesting about this is that it kind of spills into this third thing Paul says, that living just to serve these bodily, earthly appetites, you know what that means? They don't even care about it. In fact, they glory in their shame. Things that should be, covered, things that should be shameful are exposed and celebrated. And we see this all the time today, don't we? In, 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 um, in social media, especially in social media, but in the media in general, in cultural in general, this reversal of God's moral order. And, and yep, that's an old-fashioned phrase, God's moral order. And we don't, think, we don't like thinking about that because we don't like being constrained. But God has a way for us to live that's good and for his glory and for our joy. And, 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 and what, are, what are the enemies of the cross doing? They, they, they brag about their sexual conquests. They, they want everybody to know how, how wasted they were. They take pride in how much they earn and how much their car costs them. They, 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 they glory in their shame. They revel in how good their material lives are. And it just sounds like Instagram to me. <laughs> 
Not that Instagram can't be good, and I know lots of you use it for good purposes. And fourthly then, Paul says, the reason for all this behavior, you know what it is? Their minds are set on earthly things. That's what he said. In verse 19, with minds set on earthly things, it's the reason for all their behavior. It's the reason why they, they glory in their shame. It's the reason why they're just given to their, their bodily natural desires. It's, the re, it's ultimately the reason why they're heading for destruction. They've rejected the cross of Jesus Christ. Their minds are set on earthly things. At the very center of their being, this is what this means, this phrase, mindset and earthly things. At the very center of their being, what we might call your gut or your heart, follow your heart. Every Disney movie, follow your heart. You, you know, it's that where the thing that urges the decisions you make, the thing that makes you make the decisions, not your logic, but your heart. It's set on earthly things. Their heart isn't after Jesus, their heart is after the world. And this is the warning. That living like this physical, temporal world is all there is, it leads us to destruction. And this is what those who are enemies of the cross are like. This is what happens when we don't follow good Christ-like examples. And this is why we must stand firm in the Lord. And so uh, the life of standing firm in the Lord then is the opposite of this. People who stand firm in the Lord uh, live in the way of the cross. They don't live as enemies of the cross. Their minds are, are not set on earthly things. Their minds are, are set on heavenly things, eternal things. We don't glory in our shame because we know that our shame was nailed to the cross with Jesus. And he took our shame. And so we don't glory in our shame anymore. We don't glory in ourselves. We glory in Jesus. We aren't driven by our own needs and desires. We're driven by the need and desire to serve the needs of others. And our, our end isn't destruction. Our end is eternal life in the presence of God. Perfect peace and, and perfect wholeness. Perfect joy. Where next dad is today. And so this is the choice we have to make every day. Am I going to walk in the way of the cross or am I going to walk as an enemy of the cross? And you see, it's in this, it's in the, the self-sacrifice and death of Jesus that we see the life of the cross summed up. Sometimes you might hear the phrase a cruciform life or a, 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 I like to say a gospel-shaped life because I think it's easier to understand. But a cruciform life, well, we see what is that. We'll look at the cross of Jesus and find out. On the cross, Jesus met our destruction. The end that was ours, destruction, he took that destruction that end should have been ours, but it became his. And he did this so we wouldn't have to face destruction. On the cross, Jesus wasn't driven by his own desires and needs. He put our needs before his own. I mean, if you think of, of Jesus praying in the garden, of Gethsemane, the garden of Gethsemane the night before he died, uh, and, and he's, um, he's in sorrow, he's in deep, deep sorrow. He's, he, he's actually sweating blood through his skin because he knows the horror and the misery, not just of physical punishment, but of separation from, from the Father. And all of that awaits him. And as he thinks about it, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. On the cross then, the shame of Jesus revealed. Hanging naked, he was beaten. While he was hanging there naked and, 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 and bleeding to death, people were mocking him and scorning him. And in doing so, he took our shame. All that shame that he bore was our shame. And in that moment, Jesus' mind wasn't set on earthly things. It was set on the completion of God's redemption plan. This conception that God would save his people and redeem all of creation. That's what Jesus was focused on. And we're going to go into in the Ottoman to study in the book of Hebrews, which is going to take us right up to, you know, after Easter next year. And I can't wait. But in Hebrews, it says that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the shame of the cross. And you know what his joy was? The joy that was set before him, it was the joy of being united to you. It was the joy of being close to you that, that held him to the cross. 
We think, oh yeah, it must be some like mad celebration after party in heaven when he is ascended again. That's not what Jesus was about. He wasn't about self-glorification. It was the joy of redeeming you and, 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 and winning you for himself and being close to you. That was the joy that allowed him and made him endure the shame of the cross. You see, Jesus died for enemies of the cross. And while you were an enemy of the cross, Jesus died for you. He died for his enemies as a way for us to be reconciled to him. And it's this attitude that we're called to walk in. We're called to walk in this attitude of, of, of sacrificing ourselves for others. Our minds set, in, set on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Glory and in Jesus, not in our own shame. Dying for our enemies. I mean, do we, is that how we really live? Do we die for our enemies? Do we put the needs of our enemies before our own? This is the life worthy of the gospel. This is what it means to stand firm. And I think Paul leaves this last bit to last because this is kind of what ties it all together. He, you know, he said that we stand firm by following these Christ-like examples. We stand firm by living away of the cross, not as enemies of the cross. And then thirdly, we see it here at the end. He says, we stand firm in the Lord by looking towards the second coming. Listen to what he says in verses 20 to 21. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We await a savior. Just like John was saying, we wait on him, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And I'll come back to that later. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We've already seen how back in, in chapter one that, that Paul had linked this call to stand firm in the faith with the idea of citizenship. So there's something about being a citizen of heaven that, that means that we will stand firm in the faith, that we will stand firm as Christians. And, and here he brings this up again. He makes it explicitly clear that we are to stand firm because we are citizens of heaven. Now, why does he say this? What difference does that make? Well, let's put it back in, the, in its context. So he's writing to these Christians in the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi was uh, like the ideal Roman city, okay? They modeled themselves on Rome. They took a lot of pride in being Roman. Um, it was kind of like a mini Rome. They were so proud of being loyal to the emperor. And back in those days, um, the emperor, um, well, he didn't really like you to have allegiance to anyone else except him. The emperor's word was absolute. He had ultimate authority. He was, they uh, almost ascribed this godlike status to himself. And so the, the refrain became, Caesar is Lord. You'd see slogans written around, Caesar is Lord. And you couldn't say that anyone else was Lord. He had ultimate authority. And what Paul is doing in that context, what he's saying is, hey, listen, you may live in this, in this city called Philippi, which is part of the Roman Empire, but you are not citizens of Philippi, first and foremost. You are citizens of heaven. We're going to be different. We're not ultimately under the authority of Caesar. There is only one Lord, and his name is Jesus. And so don't live like this Roman Empire is all that there is because someday, guess what? We await a savior. Jesus is gonna come back and he will prove once and for all that Caesar isn't Lord, but that he is Lord. And so matter, no matter how much they persecute you or no matter how much influence they have over you or sway you to do certain things, don't bend to their will. Stand firm. Stand firm. And this is the lesson that, that we in the church in Northern Ireland and Belfast in 2020 need to hear because I think that there's, there's sometimes we're far more worried about who's in political office than who is Lord of all. And listen, hopefully one of the things you get from Village as we lead and teach you guys is that we are meant to play our part to, to, to work for the good of our city. We should we need, to, we need to go out of our way to sacrificially love the poor and the homeless and the outcasts. We need to, we need to work hard to, to, to make the spaces in our cities better, to make our streets better, to make our communities better. We need to do those things. 
But, but we need to remember that, that, that one day uh, this, this will no, be no more. Faith in any political system will not save you. Faith in a prime minister or a Taoiseach will not save you. Faith in green or orange will not save you. Or yellow, as it may be in Northern Ireland right now, probably more in our church. Faith in a political party will not save you. And here's the key we need to remember. All, all of the people of power, all the politicians, all the, the dictators, all the diplomats, princes, princesses, tyrants, kings, freedom fighters, they were all just playing at par. They were all just playing a game of authority. I used the example earlier, and some people looked at me silly, but does anyone remember Scrappy-Doo? You remember Scooby-Doo? And his uncle was Scrappy-Doo. He was this wee tiny puppy, and he thought he had lots of power. He was like, let me at him, let me at him, like, want to fight. But actually, he, he was like, pretty innocent, like pretty, pretty um, not innocent, but pretty powerless. And, and that's, that's, that's kind of like anyone in authority in the world. God allows them to have a little tiny bit of influence, a little tiny bit of authority compared to his kingdom. There's only one true authority, only one true Lord who will rule forever, only one government that will last forever, only one ruler who will meet all the needs and dissatisfactions of the world. Only one authority figure who's going to end hunger, going to end poverty, going to end war, going to end injustice, going to end racism, going to end explosions in Beirut, going to end viruses, going to end sexism, going to end murder and slavery and oppression. There's only one who's going to, to satisfy the needs of humanity. One true king. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, one name exalted above every other name, uh, the one to whom every sphere of reality has been made subject. Listen to what Paul says. You may have missed these few words in, in, in when I read it through. Verse 21, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself, all things. Did you catch that? Not just some things, not just nearly all things, all things. And you know what that means? That means that there's not one atom in the entire universe that is not under the authority of Jesus Christ. Wow. Nothing. Nothing that isn't under the authority of Jesus. And when Paul describes this, this kind of authority that Jesus has here, it's this idea of total redemption. Everything has been redeemed by him. Every sphere of reality is put under the authority of Jesus Christ. And Paul loved talking about this. He loved talking about the, the total redemption of Jesus. And frankly, I think sometimes we would do better if we spent more time meditating on that total redemption of Jesus than we do worrying about who's in Downing Street or Stormont. We, 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 we pin our worries and hopes on these, these feeble men and women, don't we? Who have authority for what? Four years? Eight years? Ten years? Even, even this week, losing John Human and the great peace that he, he, he achieved in Northern Ireland. It's a temporary peace. And we're thankful for his influence and we're thankful for the, for the, the relative peace that we do enjoy in, in, in our wee country, but, but it's temporary, right? But Jesus', but Jesus authority is complete. It's total. Listen to what Paul says elsewhere. He says in Colossians chapter one, he says, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace how? by the blood of his cross. All things being reconciled to Jesus, and how has he done this? Through the blood of his cross. See, most of the time, we, we just, when we think about the cross of Jesus, we just think of what it does for us as individuals, don't we? Well, I'm a Christian. Uh, Jesus, uh, I have been united with Jesus. I have been, my sins are forgiven. I have eternal life. I am the home of the Holy Spirit. I am saved eternally. 
and, and, and all those things are good and right and true and should be celebrated. But, but listen, if you think that the scope of the redemption that Jesus won on the cross is only about the forgiveness of your sins, you're severely undervaluing his work. You, as a Christian, have been brought into to a system of redemption in which Jesus is redeeming all things. That's why we say at Village, we are joining God in the renewal of all things, of relationships, of government, of our communities, of our neighborhoods, all things, nature, creation, being, being renewed and, and redeemed because of the blood of Jesus' cross. The scope of Jesus' redemption is the scope of everything that has ever existed and ever will exist. Isn't that incredible? And when we believe in Jesus, we, part of what happens is that it's a, it's a recognition that Jesus is Lord. He's a higher authority than any worldly government, that all things have been put under his feet, and we become citizens of the society called the kingdom of God, of which he is the king. That's what happens. We join his family. We, we come into his kingdom. And so we are no longer merely citizens of Belfast or Northern Ireland or Ireland or the UK, whichever you choose to, to decide for yourself. We are no longer citizens, merely citizens of, of human government. We are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we are first and foremost subjects to the king of kings, our king, the king Jesus, who loves us so much that he died for us. When's the last time any politician died for you? And here's the great news. This is what Paul's driving at. And I'm nearly done. One day soon, Jesus is going to return. That king, the king who has everything subjected to himself, is going to come back. Our king, church. He's going to return in all his glory and, and nobody, no government, no authority is going to be able to stand against him. Everyone's going to recognize his authority and everyone's going to bow the knee to him. So in light of that, how could we ever not stand firm? How could we ever be, like bend to, to, to the influence of Pinterest or the influence of our social media network or whatever it may be? Sounds like I'm really against social media. I'm not that against it. But just this is where we, our biggest influences come from and what we so often succumb to. I need that thing. I want that thing. I should be like her. I should be like him. But listen, Jesus alone is the king of kings. And one day, all empires of man will fall and crumble before him. And so we, we can just stand firm. And I've used this example before in Village. Um, but it's worth repeating before, uh, worth repeating again. Uh, I've been to Rome a few times. I love that city, and me and Haley love going there. Um, but but every time I've been there, you just can't help but thinking that, that what was once the most mightiest empire on earth has been reduced to a pilot of rubble. That's it. You can you can literally see the seat of authority, which would have covered the known world at the time reduced to a pile of rubble. And, and Paul, when he's writing to the Philippians, he knew that that empire would fall. And so he could say, listen guys, this guy who says that he is Lord, he's not Jesus' Lord, so stand firm because the real Lord is coming back soon. Every time you fall off your bike and break a rib or a, a, a pelvis, get back on and keep going. The race isn't over yet. And the finish line is one worth pursuing at all costs. And just as Paul knew that the Roman Empire would fall, we know, we know that the empires of our world are going to fall. The empire of, uh, of, of capitalism or, or consumerism or, 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 or social media or whatever it may be, communism in the East. They're all going to fall. Every empire of human invention is, is, is going to end one day, but the kingdom of God will last forever. Isn't that something? Brothers and sisters, I love you. And I want to encourage you, our king is returning. Our king is coming back. And he's, he's going to come uh, not as a wee baby uh, wrapped in cloths anymore. He's going to come uh, as, as a king on a stallion, ready for war, in full glory, so that even when you look at him, you'll fall on your face in fear. On that day, what well, Paul says, he says, he's going to equip our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body because we need glorious bodies to that don't end or decay, 
so that we can live in an unending and undecaying world. Our king is returning soon. And that should give us so much hope. should give us so much courage. Take courage, dear heart. As Aslan said to Lucy, take courage, dear heart. The king is returning. So let me ask you, I've been challenged by this, and I want us all to be challenged by this. How are we going to live? The king is returning soon. Are we going to live like the powers and influences of this world are all that there is? Are we going to bend to peer pressure, social pressure, economic pressure, financial pressure? Are we going to be led by the influences, or maybe I should say influencers, just to keep that social media thing going? Are we going to be led by temporary human things? Or listen, are we going to recognize that our king is returning? There's only one Lord, unwavering. Are we going to be unwavering? Are we going to trust God? Are we going to wait for the return of our king? Church, uh, my prayer is that we would never give up. My prayer is that that we would follow Christ-like examples and that we would be Christ-like examples to each other. May we live in the way of the cross. May we just daily remind ourselves that, that all of this is summed up in the cross. That, 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 that it, on the cross was a demonstration of what it looks like to have your mind set on heavenly things, to, to, to think first and foremost about the needs of others. And, and, and church, may we just look forward to the coming of our King and maybe that, may that be the reason why we stand firm uh, in the faith. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we want to thank you for your son Jesus. We want to thank you uh, for the part that you've uh, vested in him, that you have uh, su- made all things subject to him, that he is the only one that has true power. He's the only one that has authority. Father, we long for his coming. We long for an end to injustice, for an end to pain, an end to grief, an end to sickness. And so, Lord Jesus, we as your people, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Uh, Father, um, would you help us to stand firm while we wait for you? Would you help us to be unwavering? Would you help us to be like trees on the shore that we may bear the marks of being in a hostile environment, but our roots are deep in you, Uh, Father, would you provide us strength? Holy Spirit, lead us as you dwell in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory and for our joy. Amen.